Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, today is the final show of 2020, and we thought it would be fitting to end it with a Bad Roman Roundtable. We're going to talk all things 2020. As you are well aware of, we have a ton to cover, so this could be the longest episode to date. And before we get started, I wanted to mention that we are moving away from Patreon on our donation page and just doing a donation button on our website where you can donate to the show. And 100% of donations go to charity. Any merchandise sales money that we get go to charity as well. So keep that in mind if you want to donate. We're moving away from Patreon. We have some new voices on the show today. We got Deanna Evans, Nicole Parks, and Josh Allen. They haven't been on the show yet. And I'll start with Deanna. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started with uh, then go to Nicole and then Josh. Hi, I'm Deanna Evans and I'm a writer and researcher for Abolish Human Archism. And um, I'm an abolitionist. I've been doing that for about six years and abolitionism brought me to Christian anarchy, which um, after researching and reading the Bible, I found that that is truly the way that Jesus was trying to teach us. He was trying to guide us away from statism and into the kingdom of God. So um, we write about that, that um, abolish human anarchism. Big fan, big fan of, of, of your work, Deanna. I really appreciate everything that you're doing. Nicole, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm currently a homeschooling mom, and I started teaching in the government schools. And I think doing that firsthand is kind of what started leading me more towards um, leaving conservatism and moving towards libertarianism and anarchism. And now that we just we homeschool and we're trying to homestead out in the country or outside of the city limits so we can kind of do whatever we want on our property without the government telling us what to do. Um, and, you know, as far as my faith goes, I've been grown up in the church and currently in a leadership position in my church. I remember my first interaction with you, Nicole, was on the, I think it was the Jason Stapleton private Facebook group. And you had posted something, a, a picture of you and some friends out at a, uh, it was an abortion rally or, or anti-abortion rally. And I think you made it on TV, actually, if I if I remember correctly. Yes, I have been very active in the um, pro-life movement for um, since my second pregnancy, really. And I also do um, volunteer with the local pregnancy center in my community, helping uh, women. I teach the parenting classes so the women can earn their free baby items as well as preparing them for um, becoming a parent. That's great. Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? All right. My name's obviously Josh. Uh, I'm in the Jacksonville, Florida area. Um, you know, I'm a product manager by day and, and uh 
<laughs> Christian anarchist by night, right? Like, uh, I think my path probably follows what would feel familiar to a lot of people who are similar to us. And the fact that, uh, started out as a Republican, um, you know, and started to see the cracks in the system and, and moved to libertarianism and then couldn't really jive with some of their, their, you know, platform stances, uh, and just been searching for a sort of political philosophy that, that, that meshes with what I believe is the, the proper way to organize society and what I believe that like Christians are called to do and be right. And that's sort of where I am now with, with anarchism. I just can't, you know, personally square the evil that we see government and all, you know, varieties doing with, with what Jesus tells us in the Bible is the way that we ought to live as believers. Right. So, um, you know, I do some local political stuff. I'm, I'm very involved to see what's going on and, you know, what's my stolen tax money is being spent on. And I have a podcast of my own that focuses on sort of local politicians here in my county. And, and I, I sort of, <laughs> I tell people it's really a closet anarchist podcast because I don't advertise it that way, but I just let politicians come on and do interviews and say stupid things um, and let people just sort of naturally react to, to, to the dumb, awful things they say. And I'm like, yeah, that seems like a terrible idea. Um, you know, so it, it's just, it's good to be here and, and, you know, I, I'm happy to contribute and, um, you know, it's nice to be around like-minded folks. Cause I don't know about anybody else, but for a long time, it felt like, you know, I was in sort of a political desert, right? Like, am I crazy? Am I the only one that believes these things? Am I the only one that's seeing things the way I see it? But it's, it's nice, you know, to have folks who, who are similar. Well, I will say this, you are crazy oh, yeah. and everybody thinks we're crazy. And that's cool because when I first encountered anarchists for the first time, I thought they were crazy. But when you start understanding what they're talking about, it's, it's actually what we're supposed to be doing as Christians anyway. Um, Jacob and Jacob Daniel and Chris Pope are with us as well. And they have been on the show. We have not released the episode yet, but I want to let them go ahead and give us some, uh, background of themselves since this is going to be released at the end of the year. So Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I have been a over the road truck driver for 25 years, traveled all over the United States and Canada. Um, I fell down the rabbit hole about a decade ago and uh, found my way to anarchism, uh, 2015 uh, anarchism and the gospel of the new covenant came together as one and, and, uh, that's where I found my myself in into Christian anarchy and um, have been, you know, trying to be active on social media and just started a new project called Unbeliever. So I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Jacob? Yeah, so obviously my name is Jacob. Um, I have a uh, page called Daniel 3, uh, Biblical Anarchism, um, Obeying God Over the State, um, which I started after seeing other uh, Christian podcasts that were out. And, um, you know, I just figured we need more voices in the arena. This uh, movement of Christian anarchism seems to be one that is growing. And so I wanted to, you know, just jump in, do my do my part. And, uh, you know, especially to have something to show to like my local church and, and friends and family um, to try to show them that we should be uh, projecting the state and, and, and serving the kingdom of God and Daniel three being the name of my page, because, uh, it's one of my favorite, uh, stories in the Bible of, uh, Meshach, Radshach and, uh, Abednego who uh, refused to bow down to the, uh, uh, to the King Nebuchadnezzar and 
were thrown into the fiery, (laughs) to the furnace, and we're all familiar with that story. Um, And I I chose that because I think that perfectly encapsulates what our views, our our reaction, and our lifestyles should be towards the state, which is to refuse to bow down to them, even to the point of death, which is the tradition of Christianity. If you actually go back and study it, that's what the uh, the founding uh, fathers of of Christianity did. The apostles and all of them, they to the point of death. Uh, refused to to bow to to Caesar. Uh, they would only obey God, and so uh, started that page. And uh, it's been been a blast, and I'm I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing. I agree with you that we need more voices, and I encourage anybody that's even toying with the idea of starting a Facebook page or starting a podcast with the, with like minded ideals to do it. And I'm a big fan of promoting these projects as well, because one of the one of the questions I kept getting when I was toying with the idea of starting the Bad Roman Project was, are you trying to compete with anarcho-Christian? Well, absolutely not. I mean, Stephen can't do it all by himself. So why? And if you look at our podcast, if our projects and what we're how we're going about it, they're they're not the same. We have the same end goal in mind but we have different perspectives and we go about it in a different way. And I think that's how we get other people to latch on is to get people to listen to different perspectives. And I, I'm a huge fan of, of anybody that wants to put themselves out there because it is, it's a lot of work and you're putting yourself out there. You are exposing yourself to people. They're not going to understand what you're, what you're talking about at first and you're going to get some backlash, but anybody that has, has the courage to do it, I, I fully endorse. And I, and I hope that, that you will follow through with it as well. That being said, we have some old hats on the show. We've got Abby Kleckner, who's a bad Roman contributor to the blog and sometimes co-host on the bad Roman podcast. Nathan Javoya, who is the mastermind of the memes on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram posts. Scott Goldman, who has contributed to the blog. And Abby, let's start with you. Do you have anything you want to say before we get started? Hi, I'm Abby. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) I'm a Christian anarchist. I'm an accountant and have a passion for economics and theology. I like uh, throwing Abby in the mix of uh, Facebook debates when it comes to economics because she understands it better than I do. And it's funny to watch her just kind of talk to them very peacefully <laughs> because I get real snarky and, <laughs> and want to be a jerk to people, but she's real nice about it. And I, I need that tact and I don't know how to get that tact. <laughs> Nathan. I'm Nathan. I'm also a, an anarchist Christian. Uh, I think I came to this uh, first politically. I came to this uh, actually from the left and uh, got disillusioned with the left and their inconsistencies and came uh, to libertarianism through there and then uh, worked my way through libertarianism and minarchism to actual anarchism and um, then actually went back to the church through that, and uh, which is kind of a weird journey. And I keep meaning to write that article, so I'm working on it, Craig. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, I just, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to support all you guys and uh, I'm going to make some more memes. So, well, we appreciate you. We appreciate all the, all the work you're doing. Scott, how you doing, man? 
looking forward to this year to end, <laughs> but at the same time, um, don't really have strong hopes into what's going on politically for the next year. Um, life-wise, everything's going pretty well in my life, to be honest with you. Um, definitely like have had hard times this year, but nothing that's been outside of uh, the realm of control. That's always a good thing. All right. I'm going to kick this off with a subject and then we're just going to go from there. All things 2020 and anybody that knows me personally or even through social media knows that I was an avid sports fan, huge sports fan prior to 2020. 2020 has done a fantastic job of sucking the life out of sports for me. I just don't have any feeling for it anymore. I was a big Dallas Cowboy fan. I couldn't wait to wake up on Sunday to watch the Cowboys play, even though I would most likely be disappointed in the end. I was a huge fan, and watching sports during 2020 has been a huge disappointment. I cannot I cannot watch a basketball game, a baseball game, a football game. I cannot get into it. There's nothing there. There's no fan interaction. The When you take the fans out of it, I think you've lost 98% of what's going on there, and when they started locking fans out of these these uh, sporting events, I lost interest, and I just I just don't care about it anymore. Which may be a good thing, but it, it really is disappointing and it sucks. I went to see my mom on Thanksgiving. One of the things we would always do was sit around and get ready to watch the Cowboys play on Thanksgiving Day. We spent about five minutes watching the Cowboy game on Thanksgiving Day. And said, screw this. We went outside and just enjoyed the fresh air and just spent some time together, which is a good thing. That being said, on January 26th, I remember waking up and seeing an ESPN update on my phone. And it was reporting the death of Kobe Bryant. I had to read it a couple of times to make sure I was reading it correctly because the day before, uh, uh, LeBron James had tweeted out, congratulate, or no, I'm sorry, Kobe Bryant tweeted out, congratulating LeBron James on breaking his scoring record or passing him up in the scoring st- statistics. And that's what I thought it was at first. And then reading it more, I got so involved with watching this and at work, paying attention to it on break on ESPN and just watching all the coverage I could get. Me and Kobe Bryant were close to the same age. And so I kind of grew up watching him play basketball. You know, I think he went into the league when he was 17, 18, 19 years old. So you spend 20 years or so watching him play basketball. And then this happens. And I remember a a, a question on social media, what was the biggest, and this happened after Kobe Bryant's death, what was the, the single most celebrity death that, that, that affected you the most? And it was Kobe Bryant for me. I was never a Los Angeles Laker fan, but I was always a Kobe Bryant fan. I always loved watching him play basketball. And I remember saying or watching this and, and, and talking to other folks while we were watching it on break at work. I said, man, 2020 has started off like crap. This is a horrible year already. And little did I know what we were getting into. Josh? Yeah, I remember that too. And, and for, you know, I, I have spent years 
uh, mercilessly mocking people who get sad over celebrity deaths. Um, you know, and this was the first, you know, it was a little bit of comeuppance for me because this was the first time, like, I think I was actually sad and I was confused by my own sadness a little bit too. I was like, why am I sad about this? Like, I didn't know the guy like, yeah, I saw him play basketball. Why am I sad? But, but yeah, man, it was, it was a, you know, a bit of a kick in the pants. Like when that happened, because it, it was just so shocking. And, and me now, like I have a five-year-old daughter, you know, they talked about his daughter being in the helicopter with him. You know, the, it was it was not only the I remember this guy being alive as long as I've been alive, right? Like I remember him being a sports figure. I remember the things that he did. Um, but to, to think of the, the awful fact that his daughter was in the helicopter with him, and that uh, you know, dude, it was just it was it was terrible. And it, you know, like you said, it was in sort of an omen of things to come. And I don't think anybody, you know, I don't think anybody realized it at the time. No, <laughs> nobody could have predicted what we were going to see in 2020 after that. I mean. You know, we see celebrity deaths all the time, but that was just the beginning of this year. Chris? So just a few weeks after Kobe died, um, there was a big wreck at the end of the Daytona 500 where um, the guy leading um, within 100 yards of the start-finish line got turned around and went upside down, and he got hit in the driver's window by a car going 190 miles an hour, and they said it was a 60G hit. Nobody had died in NASCAR since 2001, and we didn't hear nothing about this guy for three days. Ryan Newman's his name. You know, so Kobe dies, and like two or three weeks later, everybody assumed Ryan Newman was dead because you saw him take a – I mean, he took a direct shot at, you know, right in the head. And three days later, he walks out of the hospital holding his daughter's hands. So on a sports story, it was almost kind of a redemption in a way because, you know, you. I think like you're, like Josh was saying – um, the thing that, that tugged at me about Kobe was the fact his daughter was with him, you know, and then to see, um, Ryan Newman walk out holding his daughter's hands after everybody believed he was 100% dead, um, was, you know, kind of the counter to that. But I've, I've been a big NASCAR and college football fan. So when they started talking about shutting down, I thought, well, the people will never stand for this. And what I found interesting was when I started looking at the stats, um, the year before in 2019, about 10 million people watched March Madness and about 4 million people a week watched NASCAR. And I think it was 20 million people watched the Super Bowl. And I went, okay, there's 375 million people here or 350 or whatever it is. 4 million is nothing. 10 million is nothing. 20 million is nothing, you know, and it really changed my perspective on what matters because just because something is advertised and put on television and 20 million people watch it, like the Super Bowl, 300 and some million people didn't give a rip, you know? And this whole year has shown me really what's important and what's not. I agree. I, I completely agree with that. And I want to add something too. And I've had a theory, and I've mentioned this on the show and on other shows as well, that I, I keep waiting for these folks, the, the owners of the NFL teams, MLB, NBA teams, the college football coaches that are making millions and millions of dollars off of the fan support, off of the revenue from fans. I keep waiting for them to say, all right, this is this is dumb. We're, we're going to stop shutting our fans out because we're rich and we're losing money. And I think when rich people start complaining – the politicians start listening and I keep waiting for that to happen. I don't know if it's, if it, we're getting there yet. I noticed, uh, I think it was Chip Kelly for the, the coach for Notre Dame said, we will not play in the Rose Bowl. If we're not going to be, if our family and friends cannot 
be in the seats to watch us play. What happened? They moved the Rose Bowl to Arlington, Texas to play in Cowboy Stadium now. I don't know if it's that's the start of something. I think it's kind of cool that they're pushing back a little bit. But once these pockets start getting hurt, these folks are going to start listening in Washington, D.C. and in the state. Abby, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to bring a little bit of different perspective while we're on the sports topic because I personally don't care about sports at all. Like, obviously, it was super tragic when Kobe died and uh, my husband and my oldest son are big basketball fans, so that affected them a lot. But how it affects me is my kids because I have boys, two of who are teenagers, and being able to play sports is, like, huge to them. And I think... The people who were affected most through all of this have been the kids because I don't know if like they can't advocate for themselves and people are just like, well, we can take everything away from them and that's no big deal. But like my my middle son last year was finally old enough to play in middle school sports and he went to the meeting uh, before track started to like give you information and then like the next week school shut down. So he didn't get to play track. Usually my my older son would be doing open gym with the basketball team all summer long. And it's like they would get to do it a week and then the rules would change. And so that would get taken away. And um, just it's been super frustrating for me. And just the idea that like, I don't know, you think about being a teenage boy and like they need some kind of outlet, like being locked in the house with no friends and no activity is like the worst thing you can do to your kids. And that's been the really frustrating part for me. I remember thinking the same thing. I don't have any kids, but on the way to work, there's, there's some soccer fields. And before all this started, before 2020, I've been in Memphis since 2018. I remember driving to work almost every day and there were kids out there practicing for soccer or, you know, and it was just an everyday thing. And once this started, it was gone. Like they had signs out in the, in the soccer fields prohibiting anybody from being on the field. And I was thinking, man, what are these kids doing now? I remember growing up in, in Grape Creek, Texas, we played football. It was fun. It was an outlet. Like, like Abby was saying, it was something to do, go hang out with our buddies hit some folks in the mouth with a helmet. You know, it was it was something we did, and it was fun. It was just something we did. Now, all that's taken away, and you're seeing, we're going right into COVID, obviously, with this conversation, but you're seeing how it's affecting kids these days being shut out, and it's depressing to see a kid that is running around wearing a mask, or you see these pictures of kids in, in gymnasiums and they've got them separated in different chairs. There's no, there's no close contact. And I just don't understand how people think this is healthy. We're, we're, we're social creatures by nature and kids need to be, have interaction with each other. Josh, go ahead. Yeah. My County here, it's not necessarily directly sports related, but going back to what, what was said about kids can't, it, it's not healthy for children to just sit and do nothing all day inside their house, right? Um, my county went as far as they, they actually paid money to have people come and dismantle playgrounds uh, all across the county so that not only could you not go to the park, but we're going to take the equipment down and take it apart to, to make sure that even if you manage to sneak into our parks, there's nothing fun for you to do here. There's no incentive for you to be there. So it's just, it's just, 
it's just wild to me. But but there is one bright light for me in the sports landscape of 2020 is that my Tampa Bay Lightning finally won the Stanley Cup. Uh, <laughs> so it, and going back to sort of the environment of like sports, I think I don't know if there's any other NHL fans in the group. Hockey did it best because they actually took giant electronic video boards and covered up all the seats. You couldn't really see any empty seats when when hockey started up again and they started the playoffs and whatever. And it's not ideal. I, I agree with you, Craig, like football, especially like you can't not have any fans in there and no crowd noise. It's just weird and eerie and not fun to watch like at all. But the NHL did it probably the best that they could do it. Um, they had a lot of music playing and videos and all sorts of wild stuff going on, trying to make it exciting and feel energetic like it used to with fans in there. Well, I lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas for 25 years before I moved to Memphis. That's a university town. It's the University of Arkansas. That's where they're, they're, they're stationed at. And every football season, you could just feel the buzz, man. When it was leading up, you could just feel the buzz. People were happier. Just things were happening. You know, you knew football was coming, even though – the Razorbacks have a tendency to let everybody down like the Dallas Cowboys do. But that being said, you could just feel it. And I've been to Fayetteville uh, twice, I think, since this has started. And it's so – it's dead, man. It, it, there, there's nothing there. It's just – there's no life. And everybody's running around with, with a, a mask on their face, which if you want to do that, fine, do it. But – it's there's nothing there's nothing there. It is not. It doesn't just take it out of the game. It takes it out of everybody's their their life as well. It's something that people look forward to. And Fayetteville was a cool town, man. Fayetteville was a fun town. You know, being a university town, especially when I was younger, it was fun to hang out in. You could, there was a lot of things to do and run around and hang out with your buddies and chase girls and all this other stuff. But it's not happening anymore. They've shut down restaurants. They shut down the bars. They shut down. There's a, there's a street by the university. It's Dixon street. It's lined with restaurants and bars and football season, baseball season, basketball season. This whole lockdown stuff has just sucked the life out of so many different things. Scott, go ahead. Um, like the rest of you, I really enjoy sports normally when I'm hanging out with friends and watching it. But the one sport I'm an absolute fanatic on is a mixed martial arts. And what I saw out of what they did for the UFC in this year, they had to, of course, like put off some fights for a while. But then they built a fight arena on Fight Island outside Abu Dhabi. And then they have a spot in Vegas that they're having fights at as well. And although they're trying to meet the rules to the best of their ability they didn't let it stop them and that really impressed me in a lot of ways um that they would find ways around the rules and if you look at like i don't know if any of you've watched any of the um events or not um not everybody is really quite wearing their mask right it's like it's a it's a it's a total theater yeah, it's but but part of it I get from like especially the Dana White, the guy who runs the runs the thing, is more like he's he's doing it, but at the same time doing some underlying things that are like in the sense of like I I don't buy it, I don't buy this, um, and it was disappointing when I first started watching the fights because there was no audience, um, and that that little bit of change was really um, it took away from it for a bit, but after a while I started getting used to it, and that's just I, I started to realize like that was a little bit part of me too. It was like I wanted my sport my way. 
Um, and that little bit of change was um, not really that detrimental. It did bring some other aspects because now you can hear every strike in the ring. You can hear coaching in the corner pretty well. And it has other aspects that I can um, enjoy. But my favorite event this year was actually the Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr. And the reason that one I thought was good it is not just because of the fight. I mean, it, the fight really wasn't that good. I like how Snoop Dogg actually commented on it. It says, looks like, like my like my old uncle's boxing at the barbecue, you know, <laughs> not getting along and having like a family brawl, you know, <laughs> but uh, what was really neat about it was I've always been a Tyson fan. Uh, when I was a little kid, like about 12 years old, I'd watch his fights and he was just a brutal human being. But now as like an adult, you know, in his fifties and went through so much crap in his life. He's one of the most humble people. Like the, the fight came out to a draw and he's like, Oh, I'm okay with that. And he clearly won it. Um, and just, just to see the, the evolution in that man's spirit was like a real sports highlight for me personally. Um, so I'm glad that no matter how the world changed this year, that there's still beautiful things in this. It's funny. I didn't buy that pay-per-view because I didn't know what to spend what's my money on it. But I've watched over and over and over and over the commentary by Snoop Dogg. It was hilarious. It was absolutely hilarious. Whenever uh, the guy that I don't remember his name, but he fought the the guy from the NBA and knocked him like smooth out. And just Snoop Dogg's commentary was the funniest thing ever. Like he started singing to Jesus for this guy that was laying face down on the mat. Maybe that's not funny. Maybe it's just laugh at it. Well, for, for me who loved that sport, yeah, there's, I mean, those, those things you kind of cringe at a little bit, but it's, it's entertaining. Yeah. Jacob. Yeah. With the, uh, you know, with all the sports talk and, and, and stuff, one of the things I noticed, and this was sort of already happening, but it, it contributed to the further polarization of, the uh, the culture war going on in our country because you know the, the the left and right you know I mean these are clunky labels but just to use them for time's sake uh, you know the left and right has always existed in in the West in in America uh, but they have gotten along better historically than they have in the past decade and even more so you know the past year things are really you know we, we we've seen a lot of tension. But what used to keep that tension down was when they when people had things to cling to as a source of commonality or common shared identity. Um, you know, it used to be kind of like you know patriotism and and America, the Constitution. You know, the the culture of American exceptionalism was something like that. Um, you know, one thing that the left does a little bit better than the right, we could say, is that perhaps they they don't buy into that mythos as much as the right does um so that that's escalated tensions um and and one thing that we saw lost this year was sports you know a lot of people would unite in their individual cities or just collectively under the banner of 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 athletic competition and when those things either didn't happen or they happened but the participation in them was you know completely stripped from them uh you know now people have even less to try to use, you know, now as Christians, we, we, we look at everybody as, you know, a, a child of God, someone made in God's image. Um, so we have that, but for a society that's becoming increasingly secular, the more things you take away from society, as far as things that people can use 
to cling to as like a common identity and things that people can be doing together, even if they don't have the same worldview, the more that those worldviews are going to clash and get polarized, especially when you live in a very, uh, you know, powerful state that we do, uh, where, you know, this year became pretty much just more so than before the left and the right, you know, literally almost at times, it seemed like in the streets at war because they knew that the, the, the stakes of this election, you know, being that, well, we, we have to win because we can't let the other side have the power to be able to put their worldview on us. And, you know, people, you know, unfortunately people are realizing how powerful the state is, um, but are reacting, uh, you know, with violence and to support the system and not overthrow it, which is frustrating. But yeah, just the point being that when, when the sports atmosphere changed, that exacerbated a lot of these problems. Chris, I'm going to let you have the final word on sporting events, and then we're going to get into COVID because we're going to talk about this for quite a while, I think. Chris, go ahead. Um, so what I have been encouraged by is the growth of local sports um, that aren't like stick and ball. So like, you know, NASCAR was the first sport back um, and they, you know, and it was a huge virtue signal and they named it the real four heroes 400 and all the cars had names of doctors and nurses. And, you know, of course that sport is very, very, very driven by corporate advertising. And so, you know, it makes them behave in a certain manner. Well, local short tracks started popping up. Uh, drag races have been going on all over the country. Um, the snowball derby just ran down in Florida. And there, I heard some people complaining that out of the 10,000 people that were there, there were like five of them wearing masks. So what I think may happen in this transition is when you take away those things that are highlighted by the media as being important because someone paid somebody to set up a camera. Well, now with the Internet, you know, I don't watch television anymore for entertainment. I watch YouTube. You know, I watch YouTube channels about things that interest me. And one of those things is cars. And so I've watched these YouTube guys go around the country to different drag races. And because of that experience, much like my experience driving a truck and being in 23 states since all this started, they've been out moving around and they've, they've talked to people and they've seen things. And, you know, once you see things, you can't unsee them. And so maybe one of the great benefits of, of this overblown crisis is that Things that were normally there to distract us were removed, NASCAR, NFL, you know, or things that we could go to do, you know, um, to see it live, knocked the shine off of it. And now we're looking around and going, okay, well, if I like auto racing, maybe there's a track close to me because local short tracks have been really suffering over the last few years. So maybe it's time to find local music menus, local sports teams, local things. Um, and I'm not one of these buy local zealots. You know, I, I want to be able, if I want to buy something from China, I should be able to buy it without anybody's permission. Um, but maybe we can have our focus put on the things that are different that doesn't have to have corporate involvement and advertising and censorship and all that kind of stuff. Go ahead, Deanna. As you guys were talking, like, Jacob's comments had resonated. Um, a Marcus Tullius Cicero quote, D 
the evil was not in the bread and circuses per se, but in the willingness of the people to sell their rights as free men for the full bellies and excitement of the games, which would serve to distract them from the other human hungers, which bread and circuses could never appease. And that just kind of, I don't know, the football thing kind of clicked with that. It's kind of like a s distraction of what goes on in the culture, as um, Jacob was saying, and how people all fall under that banner, but now that banner doesn't exist, so they're kind of at war with each other. That actually makes a lot of sense. So since we're not able to focus on other things outside of the political realm or religious realm or whatever, like football, basketball, baseball, we're at each other's throats more politically is that what you're saying or um not so much politically but was football kind of always a distraction was it something that like distracts maybe christians from building the kingdom or seeking the kingdom because they have their bread and circuses like the government appeases them with the bread and the football it goes kind of hand in hand not that the government is a part of football they're obviously the nfl and they're a private organization and everything but it's kind of something that um, was a happy distraction for America, and that's kind of gone. Well, actually, when you think about it, I mean, the government is very involved with football and any of these major sporting events because I don't think many people know this, and, and I've mentioned it to other folks that are flag worshipers or state worshipers, but when they got so upset with, with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem, they don't understand that prior to 2009, the players stayed in the locker room while all this was going on, and it was just for the fans. Now, the government started pouring money into the NFL, money that they've stolen from us anyway, pouring his money into the NFL to promote the military, promote uh, basically the state. And part of that was getting players involved with the national anthem and all the stuff going on prior to the game. And it's... I, when I when I mention that to people, they look at me cross-eyed. I was like, "Huh, I didn't know that." Look it up, man. <laughs> it's 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 right there. It, it happened for a reason, and I think you're right. I think that uh, football provides a distraction, but now that the government is involved with 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 sporting events, they can kind of dictate how it goes because money talks, and they've got a lot of money to give these folks that. They shouldn't be given to them anyway, Josh. Yeah, I was just going to say the the NFL, the NBA, they only care about patriotism and the national anthem because the Department of Defense is paying them money to do so. Um, you know, and if you've ever seen any interviews with with these and the NFL owners, especially, like they they're only going to do what makes them money because it's a business. And that's what they're. They, these are billionaires who have tons of money to spend and invest and turn into more money. And uh, it, it it's just so funny. Like I've had so many interactions with people they almost have like a Luke Skywalker moment when I tell them this, right? When like, when Vader says to no Luke, I am your father, you know? Um, and Luke's like, no, it can't be true. Like these, these people, they're like, no, that's not true. The government isn't paying them. That's not why they're doing it. And I'm like, go Google it, man. Like it, it'll come right up. If you Google, does the department of defense pay the NFL to put on patriotic displays? And like, even down to like the giant flags that they use on the NFL fields, the government the Department of Defense pays for those flags and sends them to the teams. The teams don't pay a dime for any of that stuff. And it's just, you know, it's just it, when, when you pull the the cover back and look underneath, sometimes it just, ugh, it just makes me sick to my stomach. Well, how many commercials do you see during one of these sporting events about uh, trying to recruit kids to join the military? Yeah, tons. It happens all the time. 
And I was not, I didn't even think about it until I realized or until I learned that the government was paying these private entities to promote the state. Jacob? Yeah, to, uh, to tie a bow on this, which will help move us into COVID. I mean, and I don't like to think of things in a Unmute conspiracy yourself. mindset. I, I always try to attribute as much to <laughs> ignorance and stupidity as I can. But it just does seem like 2020 was a perfect powder keg where the state took away kind of like what uh, uh, Deanna was talking about. They took away a lot of the distractions, the the bread and the carnival, and then they locked us in for these lockdowns. Oh, and it's an election year and all these things are going on. And it's just like – and then you have the uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and, and protesting police, police brutality defund the police. That all happened. It just seems like there was a lot of engineering going on, uh, whether it was completely planned or just uh, making sure that no good crisis goes to waste. Uh, a, a lot of things happened that just uh, pushed, kind of put, I mean, the culture wars seemed to be already kind of uh, in a state of fragility when 2020 came in, but 2020 really put that thing into overdrive and, and really escalated things to the point now where, I mean, I think a couple of years ago, you know, you didn't hear things in the media like the potential for secession and civil war. But now that that you say that and people kind of go, yeah, that, you know, with where we're at, those things uh, feel more realistic than they used to. Um, so, and you know, to me, the state is is got their hand in all of this and using it to accomplish their agendas because, uh, the more we're divided and fighting ourselves, the easier it is for them to continue to to exploit us and to continue to plunder us and to continue the wars that they're they're engaged in. You know, the more we're the more we're at war with each other, the less we can uh, effectively uh, realize the reality of our relationship with them. You mentioned secession, and I want to touch on this a little bit today if we have time, because Deanna had a very interesting Facebook post about secession the other day that I read. And I have I understand what she's saying, but it's not talked about enough. And, and we'll get into that in just a second. But I want to go to COVID. Let's talk COVID, because this has been the the thing of 2020 for the most part. Do any of y'all honestly believe or did y'all honestly think when this started it was going to go the route it's going you did because i didn't i thought all right this is just a thing it's going to pass but i because i remember when it first started we had carrie baldwin on the show and we talked about her article the virulence of moral panic and she wrote this as this was beginning and I remember telling her, I said, you could see anarchists and, and libertarians trying to get out in front of this because you knew how the state was going to respond, and they responded accordingly. But I didn't think it was going to go this far, man. It has turned into so much more, like, I, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was going to happen. Nicole? Um, I really didn't think it. I thought we would be done in two months when in Texas, our governor said, okay, we're going to shut everything down. And my parents and I, we had planned this amazing, we've been planning for a year, a trip and we were going to hit several states. And the night, I think the day after the initial lockdown, we got together to finish planning our trip. We're like, we don't need to reschedule anything. Let's just, we just plan our trip. 
because I kept saying, this will be, this will blow over in a couple of months. People realize it's just no big deal. You know, we'll be fine. And we found ourselves, you know, having to push back our trip by a month. Of course, this was back in March and um, we were still determined to take our trip and go about life. But it, it did really surprise me. And my husband's, um, he is a public school teacher and he was off for spring break. And then they, governor says, Hey, we're, you know, schools need to shut down for a week or whatever. And so that meant two weeks of spring break with my husband. And he was like, he kept saying, he goes, we're not going back for the rest of the year. And I'm like, don't say that. I'm like, you'll go back. I'm like, people will realize it's no big deal. You'll go back to school. Like kids have to be in school. This is the way our society functions. He's like, no, we're not going to go back. And, you know, everyone else kept telling me this and I was like, no, no, no. And then I realized, oh, they were all right about it. It just, everyone went crazy. I have to say as a, as a native Texan, I have been extremely disappointed in Texas through all of this. I thought for sure that Texans would bucket this immediately, but reading, and I don't know, maybe it's just the, like the pockets, like, like the Dallas Fort Worth area, just Dallas, not even so much Fort Worth, but just the Dallas area. You know, we all know what Austin's going to do, but Dallas, I was surprised at how many, if you read some of the, the, the Facebook posts on their on their pages how the th- the thread i'm just surprised at, at how they bought into all this garbage and and i keep kept hearing from from family and friends in texas well it's all the liberals i'm like wait a second the texas government is full of republicans and they, they keep locking everything down you know i used to back in the, my status days i was a big fan of governor abbott but that guy's a piece of garbage I've just been really disappointed in Texas and Chris is from West Virginia. I, and and the stuff I've seen him post about West Virginia, I'm surprised for some reason in my mind, I thought West Virginia would be somebody, a state bucking at some of this stuff and it hasn't happened. Abby, it lives in Colorado. I don't know much about Colorado, but I'm not really surprised about their lockdowns. (laughs) Abby. Yeah. I was just going to say it. Like I said, before we started recording, like, the first person I talked about it was my mom back in February, and she was really freaking out. She's like, they're shutting down towns and da 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 in other countries. And I was like, it is not that big of a deal. You're getting worked up over nothing. You know, we've heard them freak out about bird flu and swine flu and Ebola and all these different things, and it's never a big deal. And then everything started blowing up, and then they shut down the schools and shut down everything. I was kind of like, oh my gosh, people are not going to put up with this more than a couple weeks. Like this is going to be over with. Nobody is going to stay home and not go to work. And um, I remember I was actually excited that the schools shut down because my kids were all three in public school at the time, which I really hate. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You're going to have all this free time. The teachers are going to have to figure out how to teach you online. And um, you're going to, you know, be able to like do things with your friends and go out hiking and exploring and it, it's just going to be great. Uh, and then contacting moms of my friend, my kids' friends um, and them all being like, no, we don't think the kids should be getting together. Uh, we we have to social distance. We have to keep safe in this time. And I was really surprised by that because I was like, oh, yeah, you're not going to be going to school But if you get together with a friend, like the kids have to be social and play with other kids and we can't just shut down their whole lives. 
Um, and at the time they were like, oh, groups of six or less or whatever. So I was like, well, we're not getting it together in groups of more than six. Um, and so I was really surprised and, and I live in a pretty, it's out in the mountains. You wouldn't think it would be, but it's a pretty liberal town. Um, so everybody was very, very like, nope, no play dates, no getting the kids together. Um, and I was just shocked. I remember my youngest sons, I, I texted his friend's mom and she said, no, she wasn't okay with them getting together. And I was like, uh, all right, well, like, good luck entertaining your kids over spring break. And she was like, yeah, it's going to be a long two weeks. <laughs> yeah, and just thinking like, oh, man, we had no idea. I kept being so optimistic. Like, people months. are not going to put up with this. This is going to blow over. And then uh, when all the police protests started happening, I was like, finally, finally, people are going to move on from all this stupid COVID stuff and focus on something that actually matters. And then when that kind of blew over and everyone was back on COVID, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. It's just been exhausting. <laughs> Do you remember when this, when this first started and they told us that when flu season hit and more testing started happening, that we're going to see a rise in cases? Yeah. Do y'all remember this? Okay. So, I, and I've said this more than once lately, people have, too many people have the mind of a goldfish. They can make <laughs> one turn around the, gold, the goldfish bowl and forget what happened two minutes earlier. They told us this in the beginning when flu season hit and more testing was available that we're going to see a rise in cases. But people forgot that and it's panic time again. It doesn't make any sense. Chris, go ahead. Well, I need to correct something you said before. West Virginia is the federal government's 35-year-old kid that won't move the hell out of the basement. Um, there is <laughs> there's absolutely no resistance here. Um, I was on the road, Pennsylvania, New York, every week. And when this started, I, I thought, um, well, I mean, maybe it's real, you know. So I was like washing my hands extra and not touching doorknobs and it, it only took me about two weeks. Now, I can't take credit for it because I – you know, I listen to the No Agenda podcast and nobody does a better job of deconstructing the media than those guys do. And so I pretty much knew um, from the beginning because they started playing these clips of international news that the American corporate media will never play. Um, things that uh, the, the PMs in Australia, New Zealand, um, Britain, um Germany, they all started this build back better. Um, and oh, well, yeah, we're going to build back better. And then, then they, you know, this Klaus Schwab guy with the World Economic Forum starts talking about the Great Reset. And I mean, y'all, they've been talking about that stuff since June. And so I instantly knew that, that this was a global play, um, that this was their, I think, their last shot to maybe wave off the, the switch to cryptocurrency. Um, and, and the, you know, the downfall of, of fiat currencies across the globe. And, um, I think Hillary was supposed to be in and she, you know, then she would have been the, the savior on the white horse for America. And then we're all going to just sing, you know, kumbaya and hold hands and build back better. But my customers in Pennsylvania were told to shut down and I called them on a Thursday and they go, yeah, yeah, we're closing. And I'm like, okay. So I booked a load to Texas because I wasn't going to stop working. And uh, the next morning they called and they says, well, the lawyers got involved. We're not closing. And they, and they didn't close. They, they've been open the whole time. 
And so I go to Texas and, and I run up to Dallas to pick up a load and I'm standing in a truck stop at a Burger King and I'm getting breakfast and they've got all the tables and chairs roped off. This is uh, first week of April. So I'm thinking, well, it's raining outside. I can't sit at the picnic table and it's, I'm not walking back to the truck. Hey, I'm a genius. I'll order a shower on my phone and I'll go eat my breakfast in the shower. Well, there was like a 40 minute wait. So I ended up sitting in a truck stop in the floor eating my breakfast during a pandemic because I wasn't allowed to sit in a chair. Now, people walked past me sitting in the floor eating my breakfast burrito and didn't think twice about it. But if I would have walked over and pulled the chair out from one of those tables, they would have called the cops. You know, and it's it's just this strange, I don't know, dichotomy is the word, where you're expected to behave in certain ways because it's safe. But if you do things that are clearly unsafe, as long as you're not doing the things that they say aren't safe, but really aren't safe, and they want you to be safe, it's just, it's been fascinating for me to watch. And now to be in 23 states and get to see the behavior of people when they're not at Walmart, not at Target, not at the grocery store, not at church, when they're away from those pinch points, there's no masks, there's no social distancing. You know, so all these people that are locked up in their houses watching the television, they don't even understand. They can't see what I've seen. And I'm going, guys, if this virus was as virulent as you are led to believe, we'd be piling dead bodies up in the streets. There's not enough refrigerated trucks to hold all the bodies. But, you know, I'm thankful that 25 years ago I made a decision as a dumb 21-year-old kid to... uh, to get to see this, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so that's why I don't, I just don't behave the way they want me to. And I'm not going to, because you would think if I was so selfish, I would be so concerned about self-preservation, you know, but that's not the case. I'm, I'm, I'm supposedly selfish because I won't behave the way some guy said to, because he said so. Jacob. Well, when you asked if we were surprised that it lasted this long, I mean, I'm not sure if I would have known exactly how long it was going to last, but I, I knew it wasn't going to go away quickly. Um, like Nathan, I have a background where I came from the left, so I know how they operate. And the the way that the left – and we, had, we haven't released this podcast yet, but it, it does tie into that when that comes out. The left has this conception of rights that's t- totally backwards, and it's tied into this kind of uh, – virtue signaling self-righteous attitude that they have. So I knew as soon as, you know, this virus came out, they were going to be heavy on complete adherence to whatever the state and the quote unquote experts were saying you had to do in order to save lives. Because I mean, that's, we hear that all the time with gun control. We hear that all the time with healthcare as it is already. Uh, That's the left's biggest thing is They'll do anything in the name of saving lives, even if it's just one life. How many times have we heard that? If it saves one life, it's worth it. Um, of course, they don't. They don't care about all the suicides and people losing their their livelihoods and stuff and dying from that, you know. But the right and even Christians, I knew that there wasn't going to be enough. I'm not saying there hasn't been any resistance, but I knew there wasn't going to be enough because, unfortunately, we as the church collectively, I'm I'm I'm, I'm just saying all of us, we have become too attached to the comfort of, of our everyday lives. And we're not happy to or willing to 
do things that make us uncomfortable. And that's why you see most churches have been compliant um, for the most part because they don't want to challenge the state because that would that would make them uncomfortable to have to worry about the consequences. And we are, you know, unfortunately too many on the right, they talk maybe a good game at times in individual interviews or in their platforms about caring about liberty. But when it comes down to it, they care more about security and comfort. And so I knew like there was going to be, uh, you know, some pushback and there have been businesses and there have been some, uh, you know, libertarians and stuff in in the uh, Christian world and some and some churches and some isolated incidents that have defied the state and the lockdowns. Uh, but there hasn't been enough to really force the hand of the state to stop. The state knows it can get away with this and you know, once you cede rights to the state, uh, <laughs> not often without uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears do you get those rights back. So, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't really surprised at all. And unfortunately, I might be a little pessimistic uh, about 2021 because I'm not sure much is going to change. Um, I'm not sure if people are are at that point yet. I don't know how long it will take for enough people to get fed up with the fact of you know or to get to get fed up to the point where they realize that trading uh essential liberties for comfort and security is a bad trade scott yeah the the thing that surprises me i guess about how long this is going on i, I say yes it surprises me but again uh, no it doesn't is we see the theater we see like say the press secretary or somebody getting up to speak and then the behind the scenes he puts the, the mask on and then walks to the podium and takes it off you know we've all seen this like things that just don't make sense and it makes me always wonder it's like why are we putting up with this but there are people that like they will justify they will get behind whoever that person is either right or left and will spin it to make their side seem like they are the the ones that are righteous so to speak and the problem that i'm also seeing with this is how come COVID has been such a major focus and not all these other things that are springing up from our over fixation on it? And what I mean is like we're looking at COVID only and ignoring the, the mental health. I'd have to say the mental health of the nation is horrible right now um, on the right and the left. And I think me just being biased as anarchists are a little bit more seeing clearly to seeing that, you know, this is just something outside of our control. And there's better ways to approach it without doing long-term damage by just focusing on one issue. And it really reminds me of the chicken little story. When we were kids, we, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. That's, that's what I see what the government is, is putting into people and like the social engineering that um, Jacob was mentioning earlier. Um, and in that aspect, I guess it doesn't surprise me because it's, I think it's historically obvious that people in groups don't think as rationally as individuals. And I can even remember that being a line in like the movie Men in Black. You know, that's just a very cultural observation or social observation we have to make about humanity. Abby? Yeah, I think one of the like very obvious manipulation tactics has been like the metrics keep changing. Uh, and like you mentioned, the goldfish memory, it's like, well, that's not what we were saying back in the spring. So like in the spring when it first started, uh, they kept like giving these huge estimates. Millions upon millions of people were going to die. And, uh, oh, we're about to hit the peak in two weeks. Or no, now we're about to hit the peak in two more weeks. Um, and it kept going and going. And at first it was tracking the deaths. 
and then it was like hospitalizations and then it's case and now it's positive tests which may or may not correlate to people who actually have it with the amount of false positives that we're seeing with the testing too and now i hear so many people saying well it's worse now than when it was back in the spring and it's like yeah but but back in the spring you kept saying oh it's going to get worse and it it never got worse and like the cases are up but the testing is up and but people aren't dying it's just like so what are we measuring and what are we setting as the goalpost of when people are allowed to live their lives as normal and when we're looking at if these masks are effective and if the social distancing is effective it's like nobody wants to measure anything or see if anything is worth it or effective. It's just we have to keep going and going and going and kind of close our eyes and ears and just say, I'm saving lives, I'm saving lives. Well, one thing I've noticed lately, and I don't know if they were doing this when this all started, but like the governor of Arkansas's Facebook post, Shelby County is where I live right now in Tennessee, the city of Memphis, their Facebook post the Shelby County Facebook post, they are counting these cases. And, and you see off, off part of this is probable cases. They're counting those as cases. And I pointed it out on one, I think it was the Shelby County Health Department Facebook post. I said, these are, they're probable cases as well. That doesn't mean that it's actually COVID, but they're counting it and they're because it, it drives the numbers up. Well, in Shelby County alone, in Tennessee, which includes the city of Memphis, there's almost a million people just in this county. And they post number of cases since it started, number of recoveries since it started, and then number of deaths. Right now, I think the count, the count is like 750-something deaths since it started out of a million people, okay? But we don't know if they died of COVID or with COVID because some of these tests are probable, right? So out of a million people, 754 people have died. So let's shut down all the restaurants. Let's shut down all the gyms, but let's keep Walmart open. Let's keep Kroger open. Let's keep all these big box stores open because apparently COVID does not exist inside these big box stores, but they, they exist in the churches. They exist in the gyms. They exist in these restaurants. I don't know how people can look at this and not see how illogical all this is. It it, it makes me, it, it's maddening to me when you point it out and I go, well, why are you discounting somebody's death? I said, I'm not doing that. I mean, it sucks that people die, but it happens every day. People die every day of something somewhere, but we're going to shut down other people's livelihoods and mental health was brought up all ago. This is a big thing for me right now. I've been trying to track this as much as I can Mental health right now, the, the amount of suicides, the amount of people dying because they're lonely, they're taking their own lives, or in these, the folks in the, in the nursing homes that can't see their family, they're, they're, their health is deteriorating because they, they don't have any interaction with their family and friends, but that none of that's taken into account. Why? Well, we got to save one life. If you don't social distance, if you don't stay at home, if you go out to a restaurant, you might be killing somebody. No, it's garbage. It drives me crazy that, that people are buying into this, this stupid nonsense while other people are dying alone. It, it actually makes me very sad. I mean, it happened to my brother. And I don't understand 
Maybe that's why I'm so adamant about trying to learn more about it. I don't know, but it's not talked about enough. Well, all we're focusing on is somebody that has died because of COVID or with COVID, but we're not focusing on the mental health issue of all this. Nathan, you have not said one word during all of this. I want to hear something from Nathan. Well, I have a couple thoughts on it. Uh, one thought was being, so we talk about how, uh, the state is closing all these places down, but the state uses these places for tax revenue too. So in what interest is it for the state to really close all this down? Like, dude, like we see through all the BS and is the state that stupid? I mean, they have to see through it too. So we have to start looking at maybe their underlying, like, what are the reasons? Why are they closing everything down? And so maybe I'm going from it, from a, like a conspiratorial mindset, but to me, I just, I see the average citizen, the way we were all raised in public schools and the way we were raised. I mean, even in the church too, to glorify our, you know, our politicians and, uh, and to glorify the United States and our presidents and to respect our leaders. Um, we're just a bunch of Stockholm syndrome, uh, folks. Like I, I talked to my sister and she's talking about our governor as like our savior and she's trying to do what's best for us. And she really has our best interests at heart. And I'm looking at all the restaurants in Portland. Some of my best friends own restaurants down in Portland. They're closed permanently. They're never going to open back up. These small businesses are just going out. That's in no one's best interest. And uh, to me, the only people that are really succeeding are these big corporations. I mean, these big, giant megaliths like McDonald's is killing it right now. Amazon is killing it right now. All these big, giant, big box places. And it's like a consolidation of money and power and all these dummies are just cheering it on and just like clicking. Okay. And just ordering stuff from Amazon. And ah, man, it's just blowing my mind. I, I don't, I don't believe that the government is stupid enough to buy the stuff that they're saying. I think that it is okay. Put a tinfoil hat on my head. I think it, this is all just planned in a bunch of BS and people are just too stupid to see it. And they're just going along with it. Am I, am I off base? No, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't disagree with you. Actually, I try to stay with, away from uh, conspiracy theories, but it's, it, it seems like the, it's right there in our face and we can see it if you just look at it. So I don't, I don't disagree with that. But you know, when they, when we talk about conspiracy theories, it's just, when you, when you look at it, we're just students of history. One of the first things I heard when all this started, my boss, he's a, <laughs> oh, this guy drives me mad. But he said, we were talking about them shutting businesses down. And he said, well, it's the government's job to protect us. Oh, he said, take care of us or protect us. One of the, I said, no, that's not their job. And I said, you are relying on known liars to protect you, known murderers to protect you, known thieves to protect you. And he goes, well, that's their job. I was like, all right. I had to walk away. He goes, well, we have, we have food banks to take care of these people. I said, food banks don't pay mortgages. Food banks don't pay car notes. They might feed you, but they're not going to feed everybody. This is, this is nonsense that you even buy into this. Chris, go ahead. I, I think that people, when this started, We've been so saturated with propaganda and and being in this together. 
I think the initial shutdown, people were willing to go along with it because they thought it was temporary, right? Well, you know, I mean, we're not going to shut our businesses down, you know, but but it's it's temporary and it's for the greater good. And what we've seen now, of course, you don't see it on the news. You see it on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and, you know, and other platforms and places that people are not shutting down. They're not this time around. More people are saying, OK, no, I'm not doing this. I've looked into the data because and even if you take a completely selfish point of view, I have um, I, have, I have drivers that I'm responsible for in our company, employees. And um, so no matter what's going on, if it was a, you know, when the big snowstorm hit Pennsylvania and um, uh, New York in the, in the northeast this week, you know, we're looking at the weather going, OK, all right, drivers, uh, everybody needs to be safe. We tried to find loads going in different directions um, so that they wouldn't be in harm's way. And so if I'm presented with a problem, you know, in business, we're problem solvers. That's how we survive. That's how we succeed. So when this this potential new problem comes around, I'm like, OK, well, what's this going to mean for the business? What's this going to mean for the family? Well, when you have the mindset of a problem solver, um, you have to start looking for answers. You know, And of course, you sure as hell don't go turn on the news to find out what's going on. If people would just be willing to question, but we it's it, it's a religious aspect, just like growing up in a fundamentalist church. Well, you don't question the pastor. He, he he's the man of God. Well, you don't you don't you don't question him. You're questioning him. You're questioning God Himself. You know, and that's how people have behaved now with the state and the media. Is well, you, well, you can't question them. I mean, what if you're wrong? What if they're wrong? You know, nobody wants to ask that question. So, I have just tried to encourage people: ask questions. If you'll, if if I can just get you to ask questions. Y'all, the answers are not hard to find, but we're so programmed to go to, uh, what do they call them, approved sources like the WHO and the CDC. Well, that's the last place you should be getting information from right now. So it's the government. Right. I have a lot of optimism, even, even still through all of this, because, you know, we talked about this, I think, before. I don't know where the quote comes from, that the re- revolution will not be televised, uh, but now I get it. Now I get it because the the corporate media um, is because it's not news; it's propaganda. They're never going to tell the story of the um, of the business owner that's refusing to close. They're never going to tell the story of the of the church that stays open. They're never going to tell that story because they don't want people to know that people are disobeying. So, I mean, I think this is you know that. The, the globalists right now are calling it the Great Reset. I'm going to start calling it the Great Mistake. It's the biggest mistake in history. Um, you, have, you have basically attacked the entire globe with a terrorist attack at a time when they've never, ever, ever in all of human history been more connected than they are now. And we can start looking around going, okay, well, yeah, you're across the border and I'm supposed to be scared of you because you're Indian or Iranian or Mexican or whatever. But we're finding solidarity with each other outside of borders and boundaries. And I think that's fascinating. And, you know, with cryptocurrency and all the things, the decentralized technology that's happening right now, you know, if you would have asked me in January, how long is it going to take us to switch to a completely decentralized market with decentralized currency? And I'd have said 10 years. 
And now I'm thinking mm, about 10 months, you know? So um, it's just going to accelerate because here's the thing. I don't, I, this last thing I'll say, I think these globalist pigs like Bill Gates and, and, and all these people, I think they think that we're all so stupid. We're just a bunch of dumb cattle that would, you know, walk out in the street and get hit by a car if it wasn't for them. They discount human ingenuity, even the very ingenuity that made them rich, right? That, that put them on the pedestal that they're on. They discount human ingenuity and what we'll do when we're pressed into action. So I think there have been people sitting around for years now that have had ideas, uh, but didn't see a practical use for it. And now they're all going, okay, well, now it's time for me to execute on this thing, whatever it is. And I think the technological development over the next year is going to blow our minds. Jacob? Yeah, it's, it's um, when, when Nathan was talking about how it's hard for him to not look at this as a conspiracy, I mean, and, and I totally see where he's coming from, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a conspiracy that started long ago and it really starts like people have a hard time conceptualizing doing anything without the government and that's not by accident. That has been engineered and that starts in our schools. And, you know, I will never put my kids into a public school ever. Like that'll never happen because what the schools do is they basically teach this warped version of history to where just about every bad thing that ever happened got solved by the state. It's like, well, who, who gave us, uh, who gave workers uh, rights of oh, uh, the state? Or who made our food safe to eat? Oh, it was the government. Oh, who, who uh, made the water clean and people stopped polluting in it? It was the government. Oh, who, who stopped uh, the, the Nazis and who got us out of the Great Depression? It was the government. Like every, every answer to every question that you get in a history class uh, a history class test is pretty much uh, freedom was bad and the government came and made it good. And now we have a, a generation of people with who have been uh, raised in this indoctrination and then they're reliant on the system in a lot of ways. You know, it's like they, they go to the system for their health care now. They're reliant on uh, subsidies from whether it be Social Security, whether it be some kind of uh, – unemployment that they get or healthcare is a big one now, uh, whether it's Medicaid, Medicare, or they're on a marketplace plan, food stamps. And, and, and then you get to the, you know, people are so far gone there that when you start to even just talk about freedom, they go to the simplest things and, and, and can't imagine the government not being involved. And, and that brings up like the classic libertarian joke, who will build the roads, which is like, if we can't figure out how to put concrete and asphalt down in a flat, straight line without the government, without a monopoly of violence and rulers coming down and, and telling us to do it, it's like, you know, the problem is government is this awesome euphemism for people. It's like anytime, and people don't realize that. It's like the, the, the government is this magic wand that's supposed to come down and fix problems. Like the government is just people that you've been brainwashed to think are special. It's a group of people that you think have special rights that you don't and special abilities to solve things that we couldn't solve otherwise. And, uh, you know, I don't know how we fix it because you'd think this year that people would have pushed back, but people just keep clinging more and more into it. They, they love the nanny state. They love to be taken care of. And there's this, there's this, this feedback loop of, 
of, of virtue, like this, this good feeling that people get. It's like people love when they can find something that makes them feel good about themselves with the, the least amount of effort possible. And this COVID thing has been huge. It's like, oh, I put this face covering over myself and I, and I stayed away from people and I didn't do X, Y, and Z. I'm a good person. I've saved lives. It's like, you haven't done anything. Like, you know, the other thing would be uh, we've, we've eliminated from people's minds the idea that, that life has this inherent risk to it. It's like no long, there's no more risk tolerance. People are unwilling to settle for anything but uh, a perfect solution. And, and I call this the nirvana fallacy, and I've been talking about this a lot lately, um, that no one wants any solution except something that they deem to be perfect. It's like, you know, oh, well, we can't have this because, you know, well, what if this happens? Or what, you know, people might not uh, do this and that'll lead to more people dying. Like, listen, no matter what you do, there's consequences. People get sick and die. That's been the truth of humanity going the whole way back to the garden. Like, uh, you know, that, that that's not going to change. Uh, but what does change is how we live our lives. And at some point, people got into their heads that the most important part about living is just surviving. And that's just not the case. Scott, I'm going to get you to uh, talk. After, after you're done, Scott, I want to get into a couple other subjects before we close out. But Scott, go ahead and, and tell us what you had to say. I think Jacob said a lot of things there perfectly. And what comes to my mind a lot when I'm thinking about the COVID situation is this question keeps popping up. When are we going to realize as a society that the government is winging it at best? I don't want to bring up at worst, but at best, I think it's obvious that they don't know what the heck they're doing. And to kind of spin off the conspiracy thing too is I think there's a reality that we all need to face. We don't really have a democracy was we have an oligarchy or oligarchy. And that is really what controls the nation is the wealth of the rich. So as a big reset, I can really see that as that's the smoke and mirrors. We really don't know what's going on for the common man. We just know that there's weird stuff happening corporately, like these mom and pop shops that are being shut down. And yeah, of course that money is going to Amazon, McDonald's and the big corporations. So in a sense, you know, if to be a little bit conspiracy minded, I see that they're taking that power away from us. And I know that's like kind of a American reality, but I don't know what other countries are like, but I'm, I'm wondering if they're feeling the same thing. Like, are we going to become slaves again where we just have to have a job and we can't be creative? We can't say make a better world within this world kind of thing. Um, it's taking that individual individuality away. Um, and going back to like, don't want to go too far back, but into the, the, the Kobe Bryant thing kind of brought something to my mind is what made that, I think, um, an attention getter is because his daughter was in the crash and it, it brought us to the humanity of Kobe, not his celebrity status. And I think that's the same approach that we need to kind of bring to government is, is these are humans, whether they're doing their best or trying to manipulate us, they're just humans like us. And we have to remove that idol, so to speak, of what their position is. I know that's that's easy for us to say as anarchists, but I just I just want to get that message into people who are status. How do we do that? Um, yeah, that's where I think I need to leave it is how do we really free the minds of people to to stop looking at them and, and in a sense look to themselves and their own judgments? Um, it, like, like the virtue signaling thing that I think Jacob mentioned it, that I'm wearing a mask. Um, 
and I'm making people feel safe. Now I'm a good person. I mean, are people so desperate inside to be seen as a good person? They can't see their own goodness. You know, that's another good question I have about of, of what 2020 and this COVID thing is really bringing. Yeah, there's a lot of good questions to ask about this. All right. So I want to touch on a few, a couple of things, homeschooling vaccines, and we had a presidential election. I know Nicole Parks is a homeschooler and her husband is part of the public system, public school system. And I believe she was also a teacher in the public school system as well. And I know Chris is a homeschooler and Abby is now a homeschooler as well. And I'm curious, one thing I noticed when all this was, when they were started shutting down schools is a lot of people were started talking about homeschooling their kids. Now, Abby, have you noticed any difference in your, in your child since you started homeschooling him or is it, I don't know really how to phrase a question, but is there a difference in him? Cause I know he, he went back to school and he finally told you that I'm done. I'm done with it. I want to do homeschooling. Have you noticed a difference in him since this started? Yeah, the difference has been huge. And it's been such an interesting experiment because I have tried to push my kids into homeschooling for a long time, um, but they're all older. And it's like, you know, my oldest is a junior in high school this year. And he's like, mom, I'm not going to quit school and stay home with you. And I'm like, I get, I get it. It's up to you. <laughs> But my youngest, um, he's always hated school. And I think just his personality, he is like not compliant whatsoever. And not that he's like defiant and rebellious, but like when you tell him something, he sees it as like, okay, that's where I start negotiating. I wonder where he got that from. <laughs> <laughs> so school for him was just like every single thing he's like it makes no sense that they do it this way i'm not allowed to say that i'm bored why can't we talk when we're putting on our jackets not we they, we don't have to listen to the teacher then just like everything he would question which is awesome and i love that about him but also it it was hard for him to see another way like uh i kept encouraging him to homeschool but he he was afraid he was like i won't get to see my friends um, and I think he just didn't have any experience to know what that was like. So he went back to school at the beginning of this year, and then he just kept crying in the morning. I don't want to go. My teacher's mean. I hate everything we do. And it was like it finally clicked. I, I was like, well, then let's not go. Let's quit. And he was like, well, really? I'm like, I've been saying this for years. <laughs> so my older two are still in the public school. And my youngest, I've been homeschooling since September and uh, yeah, the change in him has been phenomenal. I mean, the, the biggest one is he's not crying when I wake him up every morning, which is awesome, obviously. But just seeing like his curiosity and his creativity be able to blossom and like uh, I, I have like a, a few set things that he has to do every day, but most of his day is free and he comes up with all kinds of stuff to do. He got went through a period where he was doing stop motion videos and went through a period where he was like going around the house looking for things to fix and getting out my husband's tools and like tightening up screws everywhere and just stuff that nobody ever would have thought to like, and today you're going to go around the house tightening screws. Like, you know, it's just kids are curious and want to figure stuff out and to be able to see that has been awesome. And, and he's just, he's just happier and he's more accepted for being himself 
rather than being like crushed on a daily basis, which has been awesome to see. And then I still have the contrast to that of seeing my older kids be in school, which schools have always seemed very prison-like to me. But this year, obviously, that has really ramped up. And just the amount of rules they have to follow and the amount of hoops they have to jump through and, um, you know, not being allowed to touch each other, not being able to see your friend smiling at you because you have to wear masks all day, getting in trouble for pulling down your mask to take a drink of water, just like crazy amounts of things. And it's just, it's, it's really depressing that this is what we're doing to our children. And then with the distance learning because they they started the year going in person but it's like every little thing that happens they take the kids out of school and say we're doing distance learning so it's just been flipping back and forth constantly we we sometimes don't get any notice at all they're like come pick up your kids we're closing the schools down so that's been crazy because you know kids really need consistency and for just it to be on a day-to-day basis. We don't know if you're going to school today. That's been insane. And then the actual distance learning, I was really excited about that at first when it started last year, because I was like, oh my gosh, the teachers are going to have, you know, all the standardized tests are canceled. The teachers are going to be able to get really creative. The kids are going to be learning how to use more like technology. Um, I thought it was a big opportunity to make school better. And I thought people would finally realize like, oh, my kid doesn't have to sit at a desk for eight hours a day. We were doing school in two or three hours and it worked out just fine. Um, And I think I was too optimistic (laughs) about that. I don't know, maybe the long term will end up better. But yeah, it's just been crazy for kids to sit in front of their computer all day. And uh, my middle son, who's in eighth grade, I think it's been the worst when he's doing distance learning. He has to sit waiting for his class to start because they're all spread out. And then the meeting starts and most of them, they take attendance and then the class is over. And I'm like, why are they taking attendance if there's nothing for you to attend? That makes no sense. (laughs) They're just jumping through hoops of what the requirements are that they have to fulfill. And I feel like I have sympathy for the teachers. I'm sure this is hard on them and like crushing all of whatever they had left in them that was like trying to actually help kids. But yeah, to see the contrast, it's just like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? And the other thing, and then I'll stop tirading, but uh, my, so my son in eighth grade is a couple years ahead in math. So if COVID hadn't have happened, he would be going to the high school for math this year. Um, But they had to not allow that. So he has to do his math class through the like online public school. And so what that has looked like is he has a teacher that he has never seen or talked to whatsoever. Um, I'm not sure at all what her function is. Uh, She apparently exists somewhere in the world, but he, he just has to teach himself. He has to read the book and teach himself and then take a quiz on the computer and the computer grades him. And there's like a, an advisor that checks in with me every now and then and say, oh, I just want to check in and see how Liam's doing. And I'll say, yeah, he's really struggling because he has no teacher and has to teach himself how to do geometry by himself sitting in a library. And she's like, okay, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. 
it's just like, oh my gosh. So I'm at this point, I'm like, I don't know if he is actually learning geometry or if this is just an exercise in futility to see how frustrated he gets. It's all been an interesting experiment. The, the public school side has been frustrating as I expected it to be, but homeschooling has been awesome. I'm, I couldn't be happier that we decided to do that. That's awesome. Nicole? Well, I think I'm glad Abby has had the opportunity now to um, experience homeschooling. Um, you know, one of the things that I was really hopeful for was I was so excited. I'm like, hey, everyone's going to get to be like a homeschooler now. And I was also hopeful that more people would see um, kind of how much the public education system just sucks, um, even though I'm still friends with many teachers and relatives. But what I did start seeing is kind of about end of July, beginning of August, I had several people um, message me about homeschooling because they either were too scared to put their kid in public school or they didn't want to have to deal with all the the rules that were going to be in place. Like it was going to be too stressful for them. And so I gave resources and it was encouraging to them like, yeah, you can do it. And then what I ended up finding, like people that I knew, they kind of maybe started out homeschooling um, and then they put their kids back in public school. And kind of the biggest reason was not that it was too hard for them to homeschool. It was because of the socialization aspect of it. Their kids were missing their friends. They wanted to be around their friends. And this is something, you know, when I talk to people all the time about homeschooling is socialization, just the number one thing that's always brought up. And so many kids I would talk to, even I, I was a, in contact with one of my former students that she's a senior this year. And when things happened, I reached out to her and I said, hey, are you doing okay? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, well, are you liking, you know, being home now? And she goes, well, I never thought I'd say this, Miss Parks, but I wish I was in school because then I could be around my friends. And I was like, oh, you know, I totally understand, you know, those, the friendships and the aspects of it. And, you know, we were... I think homeschoolers were at the best um, advantage during this whole thing because we were already prepared and ready to go. Now, our, our community co-op group did, we did shut down and we did some um, online Zoom meetings, which was extremely difficult for those little kids because we had mostly four to uh, 11-year-olds in our group. And even for my kiddos, like getting on the computer to do stuff was not it was something they just couldn't do even with their parents sitting right there. Um, so we were able just to, to just, you know, truck along with things. And, um, you know, I get, it's, it's kind of funny. Like I, as much as I want everyone to homeschool and leave the public school system, the part of me was like cheering on that schools would almost open back up just to be able to prove to the masses that, you know, it, we're going to be safe and get through everything, even with the kids being in school, because through just years and decades of just how messed up kind of our culture is, is unfortunately, a lot of those kids need to be in public school, because that's some for some of them, that's the only thing they're going to get, they don't have um, dedicated parents, or the ability to be able to function in a homeschool. And that's a lot, you know, because I think of the way our culture functions, unfortunately. All right, Chris, briefly tell us what you have to say. And I want to get touch on a couple other things. Well, what I found interesting is that 
uh, back in 2009 when the financial crisis hit, I looked around and I said, I don't want to ever experience this again. And so I started looking into self-employment. And when our kids were school age, we homeschooled. My kids have never gone to a government school. And outside of a few events getting canceled, you know, their, their state championship archery uh, uh, tournament got canceled. My kids' lives are unaffected. You know, their their social interactions didn't change. Their daily routine didn't change. And so I'm so glad that I made some decisions a decade ago that put us in a position to where my income was unaffected. Our home life was unaffected. You know, our church kind of, you know, went back and forth, was closed and open and closed and open. But my kids, it just didn't affect them, you know. And now they're looking around, and, and I've got an 11-year-old boy that where the apple didn't fall far from the tree, so he's going to have some stuff to say in his future. But I, I just um, I want people to understand that you can make decisions. You, you, it, you can't do it right now. You know, um, you can't turn on a dime. It takes a long time to get yourself in this position. Um, but I'm glad that that a decade ago I prepared myself, not knowing what I was preparing myself for, to be in a position where I wouldn't have my life turned upside down. Jacob? Quick reflections on my uh, experience public schooling and why, you know, even before I became an anarchist, I was determined not to put them through public school, which was that you know, the public school doesn't teach you to actually think or teach you how to succeed in life. It just teaches you how to pass a test and how to do, uh, to, to listen to what people tell you no, no matter what. Like I remember in 11th grade, a common thing you have to do in 11th grade is do like a research paper. And I, I was fine with that. It was like, you know, I had a subject I wanted to write on. I want to go do it. But they couldn't just say, write a paper, hand it in, make sure it's properly cited and sourced and whatnot. It was like, no, like, we're going to teach you how to write a research paper and not just like teach you like, hey, here's some basic guidelines. They were like, we're going to like step by step guide you through the writing of the process, which was annoying because every time like so they'd make you write down everything on a note card and then give it to the teacher and then the teacher would look over it and and try to like micromanage what you were saying. My teacher tried to convince me to not even write on what I was doing, which was the subject of abortion. And I was trying to write, uh, you know, a, a research paper on abortion to debunk some of the, uh, the myths about the, you know, uh, when life begins, the status of a fetus, its developmental stages. Um, and my teacher, like, I mean, she didn't force me not to, I ended up writing it on abortion, but man, she, she bent over backwards trying to get me to not do it. And I basically had to get, you know, I, I didn't like threaten her, but I basically said like, you know, I think I should be allowed to write about this. If you're telling me not to like, I mean, I guess I'll come up with something else, but like, I've already been talking to my dad about it and I know he's going to be disappointed because I'm getting his help because he knows a lot about this stuff. And she finally went with it, but um, I didn't, I didn't like the style that they were trying to make us do it in either like like write everything down on a note card first and then write a first draft and i was like why do we have to all do things the same way in this robotic uh like systematic way well you know when you look into the actual history of our public education system and if you haven't do so i mean it's it's actually engineered to be that way it's actually something that we uh it's the prussian model look into that if you haven't but yeah it's 
it, it, they're public indoctrination camps. And it's not even just indoctrination into accepting the state. It's indoctrination in terms of like it, it, you come out of this public schools unable to actually uh, – you don't have any skills to actually be self-sufficient and to live life. Uh, so they're almost – there's two problems to it. They're indoctrinating you to accept the state and then they're like handicapping you to, to rely on them because you can't function without them because they didn't give you any skills to go out there and provide for yourself. So, um, you know, and unfortunately, I don't know if this COVID mess is going to help with anything because, you know, now I think a lot of parents, unfortunately, like sending their kids away to school so they don't have to deal with them, which is unfortunate. But um, I don't think that uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is going to result in a lot of people in the long term switching to homeschooling or not. That would be great. But, you know, the state forcing everyone to be home isn't the best environment to have people make that change. Well, that's a good point about uh, folks happy to be able to send their kids away because a guy I work with, he was him and his wife were talking about homeschooling because it was going to cost them money to get a babysitter or whatever. But it was it was easier to send the kids to school while they went to work. And then they decided not to homeschool because the schools were going to open up virtually and it wasn't going to cost them any money. But his his complaint was, what am I supposed to do with my kid when I got to have to go to work? All right. I don't know if we can do this briefly or not, but how many of y'all are going to be taking the vaccine? Show of hands. No hands. Okay. That's, That's what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That being said, I want to touch on the presidential election and secession. And I'm going to start with Deanna because, like I said, she had an interesting Facebook post about secession and as Christians, how we should view this. Do y'all see any change with the Biden presidency or do you think it's going to stay the same? I've heard a lot of folks say that it's going to get worse because of Biden. He's going to try and force mask mandates. I'm like, well, he can't do that constitutionally through in a state unless the state complies. And now you see a whole lot of talk about secession because of the Biden presidency. I think we saw this when Obama was elected as well from the right. But now that Biden and their people believe that the election was stolen from Trump, they're talking about secession. But Deanna posted something the other day. And Deanna, I want you to break this down, how you said it in your post, of how you feel about secession. Um, secession is basically, it's pretty much minarchism, kind of. It's just everyone, maybe all the red side going to one side, all the blue states going to another side. It's just another form of minarchism. It's not a solution at all. Because while you're doing that, it's still just the same thing. It's, it's statism light, basically. Like as Christians, we shouldn't be seeking that because we have to understand that the government is, we all read 1 Samuel 8, right? So we all know that the government is actually God's judgment on a people who reject him. So all these things that are going on in like 2020, like I sat back and I'm like, yeah, this is happening. Okay. But we know why it's happening. Like Biden is the same as Trump. They're in bed together. They're making a real great show of it this year. It's, it's, everyone's been entertained through the whole, you know, discourse of will he leave the presidency? Will he not? But it, as Christians, it shouldn't affect us at all. We like Rome fell, right? And Christians survived through that. Not only did they survive, they thrived because they were outside of that entire beast system. They understood that the people 
were begging the state for their bread, but they were getting their bread from their congregations the way that Christ had commanded them to do so. And we as Christians, we've completely forgot that way. And that's how we're kind of stuck in this. You know, everyone's like, should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? We we're slothful and these types of things are judgment on us for being slothful and for not obeying God's word and living the way that he wanted us. Like now, if ever there were a time to actually repent for the kingdom of God is actually at hand, it's been at hand and it will continue to be at hand. But until we repent and start living like it's at hand, we're going to see things like ideas of secession, which is like it, could panarchy work? Absolutely. But as Christians, it's not up to us to want to live in that area or even promote it. We should be only promoting like the kingdom of God. That's there. It's real. We can live within it if we all like got together and realized the state is judgment and we're not supposed to have anything to do with that. That's for God to turn those over to their debased minds. They get turned over to the state. We're supposed to have the kingdom of God. We're supposed to live outside of that. So when I see like Christians promoting the idea of secession, I can understand their point because I was a statist. I was at one point advocating for the death penalty for women, post-abortive women. So I totally can see how they can think that there could be some type of solution within the state like secession, but also as an abolitionist, secession wasn't like the solution in the 1800s. And if we all notice, like, um, Abraham Lincoln supposedly freed us, freed the slaves, but the 14th Amendment actually enslaved us all. So there wasn't any actual freedom there. So I don't think secession would free us anymore. The only person that can free us is Jesus Christ, and following him is the only freedom that we're going to find as Christians. I love that. Abby, what's your favorite Bible verse to kind of play off of what she just said? I'm blanking, but... <laughs> It's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, do not yoke yourselves again with a yoke of slavery. Something like that. I'm not getting the words right. <laughs> you have it tattooed on you. <laughs> I know. I don't have the words. I just have the first. That's awesome that you have it tattooed. Yeah, she's, she's got the tattoo to prove that it's her favorite Bible verse. <laughs> Scott? So the uh, succession that uh, Diana was talking about, it first has to happen in the heart. It has to be... Like a wake up to, yes, I am in the kingdom of heaven right here and right now, and I do not belong to the world. I am not an American citizen. And just like something we have to consciously choose. And that's something I think what the first century really had down. It's like, oh, okay, I don't have to belong to Rome at all. I belong to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of, of the world, um, that which was the dominating empire of its day. And we have to live in the reality that we live in the real kingdom, so to speak. And I just see such the connections between the new covenant that Chris had brought up um, and the Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that it's the Lord in us. And that's where his, I'll just say it this way, his sovereignty is, you know, he rules over my life individually and I have to allow him, so to speak, to how I deal with other people in my life. And there's a, I think it's an academic term because um, I keep hearing it from academics called the end of history where humanity arrives in its final form of governance. And I think that has to be the same thing as the new covenant. It's God in each of us. And I, I think that's the goal. That is, that is the unique goal. And what I, what I see in the scriptures, and um, definitely don't see it from 
how do you say the evangelicalism I grew up in. But when I think about the Tower of Babel and God comes down and sees what they're doing and strikes them with many languages, um, there's something that he says before that. He says, well, these people are as one. And if they continue in this way, there's nothing that they cannot accomplish. And there's something bad to that because God strikes them with the languages and they disperse and kind of do what he commanded in the first place, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then you see later in the Gospel of John where Christ says, may they be one as you and I are one. And oh, that kicks me right in the chest is the new covenant. Oh, that's 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 what Christ was talking about. He wasn't talking, and I used to think it as like he wanted Christians in full unity, because well, heck, look at us. <laughs> Even in America, we have different denominations, but then you start looking at it globally. I mean, wh whose doctrines right? Syrian Christians, American Christians, uh, Orthodox, Russian, Greek. There's just it just goes on and on and on. So it it, it seems like a clear point to me with with Christ's prayer that he wants this oneness in each of us um, and that is the only way really to have anything close to a nirvana or a heaven on earth which is within his prayer you know may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven um, and i think the only way that we really can keep doing this is by living in that reality like deanna said we consciously have to be putting this forth and living it out. Um, and in that way, I think we can change the world, but it has to be through every human heart that's already committed to Christ. All right. I've got Jacob, Nathan, and Josh will have something to say, and then we're going to close it out because I've got to get out of here and get to work. But uh, Jacob, you had your hand up first. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think the only kind of secession that works is when people uh, reject statism for the kingdom of God. Um, I do like watching my statist and libertarian friends uh, promote things that they think are better than what we have, if only to push the conversation along, because a lot of people, it takes them a while to get to these conclusions, took me a while. Um, so, uh, you know, but I, I do criticize secession because I think it ultimately, boil, like the only way to make that happen is you're going to end up having to revolt against whatever you're trying to leave there's not really any historical examples of political secession working i mean we kind of see that in our own you know those of us i think we all live in the states we all know the history of when a group of people tried to secede from the union it it didn't really work um so yeah it's 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 hard to you know like i said earlier once you cede rights away to the state and sovereignty away to the state um, it's only through blood, sweat, and tears that you get any of that back. So secession sounds good on paper. And even if it did work, you know, you're not seceding and creating a free society out of that. You're just like Deanna said, it's you're just you're just kind of decentralizing into smaller states, which that might sound good on paper, but if that's what your hope and faith is in, and that's what your uh the seeds you're sowing are, uh, I think that's just a low that that'll be a long-term, very fruitless endeavor. Um, the only true freedom, like like the verse that Abby brought up, the only true freedom comes from the Spirit of God and from uh, you know, and from submission to God. And that's where I'll leave it. Yeah, we have an episode coming up that we're going to drop in January that I did I did with a, my friend who has been my mentor, and he's very studied on the constitution. We talked about secession. The, the episode is about secession. And in conclusion, it turns out there's really not a peaceful way about going about it. And that was one question that was always brought up. 
about secession. Is there a peaceful path to secession? And he said, it depends on who's in power. Well, if Trump, if Donald Trump was still in power and the left wanted to secede, do you think he was going to let it go without any kind of violence? Abraham Lincoln proved that. And the same could be said if Biden, with Biden being president. If the right tries to secede, it's going to end with violence. Nathan, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to talk a little bit about uh, Joe Biden being president now and maybe some uh, good things that can arise from it. Um, I have a lot of conservative friends. I've got a lot of liberal friends. And it's just it's kind of funny watching them flip the script because uh, I know a lot of uh, more of the right wing kind of guys, the militia movement sort of folks that like they have been so under Donald Trump's spell that you'll see the tyranny right under their noses. And they're like, yeah, but Trump's doing it. So it's okay. And, uh, and then the left is the big resistance movement now. And, and just funny thing. And now it's flipping the other way around. Cause now my liberal friends are, they're busting out the American flags now again. And they're like, it's okay to be patriotic again. And they're all excited. And it, and now the right is pretending to be the resistance. And it's, it's just, it's a goofy thing. And I, it's funny because I think you're actually going to see, the best of the Republicans come back out again, but it's not going to be real. Uh, but it's cute and I like to watch it and it's funny. So for me, I get to laugh and point out both of their just hypocrisies and they're just funny little things that they do. Uh, but as far as uh, the Constitution, you were saying that that's going to stop Joe Biden from maybe making mass mandates. You know, I like he's already said that he's going to go to the local places and and try to get it instituted that way. So, I mean, we all know the Constitution isn't worth the paper that it's printed on. So, I mean, I, if they if that's what they're wanting to do, that's what they're going to do. And it's just that's a bummer. Uh, and uh, we're going to get through it. Jesus Christ is king. And Joe Biden's, a, you know he's not going to last long anyways. And we're going to have Kamala the cop. So. <laughs> I don't know if I should be laughing at that or not, but if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Josh, go ahead. For me, secession, just the idea and having conversations with people, you can see that the idea itself is jarring to people, right? Um, partly because it's so antiquated. The last time anybody seriously talked about secession, you know, was in the 1860s. Uh, but also, I think because of the fact that what everybody's touched on, th there is not a path that anyone can really see where secession would be done in any sort of a peaceful manner. Right. Um, I don't think me personally, regardless of who's in power, they're not going to let their adversaries bow out um, and diminish the overall power of the, the political structure, you know, from the federal, state and local level on down. Um, but I do think it leads for me in the times I've used it, it leads to conversations with other people because you talk about secession and you talk about, oh, yeah, that would just, you know, like me in the state of Florida, Florida, we'd be our own little country. Right. And then people start to talk about, well, yeah. So like Tallahassee would be in charge. And, and then, you know, it just naturally flows into the, the stupid things that the state level government does. Right. Like, well, they're not much better than Washington. Oh yeah. You know what? They're not. Maybe we should just dissolve into counties. Like maybe Clay County here in Florida should be its own little country. And then that naturally sort of flows into, well, I don't like what the, the leaders of Clay County are doing either. And then people sort of come to this conclusion of like, well, what, what's an alternative? Like, if all of them suck, like all levels of government are terrible and suck, like what should we do instead? And like, oh, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about voluntarism. Let me tell you about some other ideas, a different structure and idea and way of thinking of the world. I, I do look at it a little bit, and I guess this is sort of dated and cliched, but I, there are some folks that are so plugged into the system. It's like the movie The Matrix. They're still in The Matrix. They're not ready to come out, and you sort of have to feed them 
these ideas and walk them down the path and get them into their mind thinking that, hey, there actually might be a way that we could survive and be better off as a society, as a world, as a nation, whatever you want to call it, without the traditional way that we've always been taught by the government that the government should exist and, and interact with people. It's been good stuff, guys. I really appreciate everybody's willingness to come on and, and talk to me for two hours. I, I appreciate y'all setting some time aside to do this. It's been a cool conversation. I don't think that we could have done it all in two hours. I think we could still talk about this for another two hours and maybe we'll do it again, but we'll see what happens after uh, the new year starts and see how things are going. Maybe we'll, we'll get everybody back on and we'll kind of regroup and see what's happening. I'm going to go down the list here. And if you have anything to plug, Feel free, podcast, Facebook page, anything. Chris, go ahead and plug your stuff. I can be found on Facebook uh, at Unbeliever Podcast, uh, anchor.fm slash Unbeliever, uh, Instagram, Unbeliever Podcast. Also, Blue Ribbon Logistical Solutions.com. That's where our for profit uh, efforts are at, where we, uh, where we train people how to be owner operators in the trucking industry. So check us out. Nicole? Um, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok and YouTube um, under either Nicole Parks or the uh, Set at Home Mom. Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook as well. I have a page that I'm kind of working on called The Mind of Christ. And if you've seen it, please give it a like and a follow. And I'll try to put more content on there. Um, and feel free to share it if it speaks to you. And I'd appreciate it. Deanna? You can find me at abolishhumanarchism.com and also Abolish Human Archism on Facebook. Josh? The Clay County Beacon is the podcast and website that I run. Um, you can go to claybeacon.com or look us up on Facebook. And also, you know, I'm personally on Facebook, pretty active there. So feel free to hit me up. Abby, you got anything you want to plug? Nope. Bad Roman. <laughs> Bad Roman. <laughs> I like that place. That's a, that's a pretty cool spot. <laughs> it's a good one. Check it out. I, I, I'm kind of fond of it. Maybe I'm a little biased. I don't know. Nathan? Yeah, just the bad Roman. I'm kind of boring on Facebook because uh, my employees are, or my employers are friends with me. So I kind of am quiet on there. So you can find my memes on the bad Roman. Maybe I should be quiet on Facebook. Maybe that's why my, all of my uh, coworkers are looking at me cross-eyed whenever I come into work every day. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Jacob? Yeah, so... Um, Starting the first of the year, a website will be up, which will be daniel318.com. It's uh, already under construction. If you go there, you'll see you'll see that. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook, uh, Daniel3, Biblical Anarchism, uh, and uh, YouTube channel is up. Podbean is up. Spotify in the works. Uh, but you can find all that either on the website or on Facebook. And you can find me as well, just Jacob Daniel. Last name is Winograd. I'm pretty sure I'm publicly available to find, so you can – Find me in all those places. Awesome. Man, I, again, I really appreciate everybody's time to come on here and do this, and we will do it again. But, again, thank you all so much for coming on and doing this, and you all have a great day and Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. <laughs>